You're listening to the Tranquility Tribe podcast, an empowering space for all parents from conception to childhood. In this podcast, you will explore your birth options, hear from experts in the field, learn to embrace self-indulgence, and prepare yourself for parenthood with Haiti. She's a coffee connoisseur, lover of deep belly laughs, a big-time tailgater, and your neighborhood birth junkie. From Mississippi to Massachusetts and everywhere in between, here's your host, Hee. Hello, villagers. Happy, happy, happy Tuesday to y'all. They are doing construction right outside of our house, so you might hear a little bit of background noise in this intro piece, but the rest of it I think should be all clear. You're listening to episode number 38 of the Tranquility Tribe podcast, and I am so, so excited to share this episode with you. I am thrilled to have Carly Blau on the show today. This is one of those episodes that tops the charts for excitement for me. It also has been one of the most requested topics. This episode is going to blow you away, so hang on to your hats, y'all. Endometriosis is a condition where the tissues that line your uterus grow outside of your uterus and adheres itself to other organs, such as your ovaries, fallopian tubes, bladder, cervix, rectum. I mean, it can appear other places, but these are just the really common ones, and it also causes extreme pain with periods and sex. Carly is known as the sex doctor on Instagram, but for thousands of other women, she's just a sister, a warrior, a friend. She's someone else that's walking beside you on the journey of endometriosis. She's a licensed sex and relationship therapist and women's health expert, and she's given us all the deets on all the things, infertility, emotions, sex, and mindset. Buckle up, because we don't hold anything back in this episode. So without further ado, tuning in from New York, here is Sex Doc Carly. Carly, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so grateful to be here. This is awesome, and I'm so ready to get the party started. I am so excited to have you on this show. I'm really, really excited to dive into all of our topics today. I feel like we could really chat about anything and everything, and I feel like we could chat about things for forever, Um, and I have to remind myself that I want to have you back in the future for, for more episodes, and don't worry, the listeners will make it loud and clear if they don't get enough of you. I want you to start out by telling us a little bit about your sex therapy practice and how you came to be a sex doctor. Sure. So um, I currently work in New York City on the Upper East Side of Manhattan as a sex therapist, but I'm also, you know, technically I'm a sex therapist, but I'm also a psychotherapist. So I do a lot of, I do therapy in general where, you know, somebody would come to me for anxiety, depression, daily struggles, daily stressors family life, um, work stressors, career counseling, and all that. But my clinical specialty is in sex therapy. And in that and under that umbrella is, you know, marital and family therapy and doing marriage counseling, relationship counseling. I call it commitment counseling because you don't have to be married to um, need a therapist or need help and support in a relationship. Um, And so I I do all that kind of therapy with individuals and couples. And as a sex doctor in particular. So I'm actually finishing my PhD right now. I'm about to start my dissertation this summer. And I'm in a program at Widener University for clinical sex therapy. And it's going to make, it makes me by training a clinical sex therapist and a doctor of clinical sex therapy, which is amazing. Um, It really gives a chance for me to help a lot of people. And the thing that I tell people about sex therapy is that what makes it different than regular therapy is a sex therapist goes through a certain kind of training to be able to talk about sex like chicken fingers and french fries. Whereas for somebody else, it might be a little bit more nerve wracking. For another therapist, sex could be a taboo topic. 
when you go through training to become a clinical sex therapist, you go through a clinical training that allows you to process feelings and emotions around sex so that me as a therapist, I'm, I've already worked through a lot of the anxiety and the stressors that I might feel around talking about sex-related issues so that when someone comes into my office and wants to talk about them, they're in a really safe space with someone who isn't just processing something for the first time, but rather really understands what somebody is saying. And to have the education around sex and sex-related topics is huge. So that's basically what a sex therapist is um, and what I do. And how did I become a sex therapist? Well, I, it's a little bit of a long story, which I won't tell you because we have a whole nother, whole nother episode for that one. But basically I was going through a bad relationship when I was 14 years old with someone who was very controlling and um, emotionally abusive physically and in some other ways as well. And I came from a very loving home. And I had wonderful parents who were incredibly supportive. And yet I found myself in this relationship and felt really alone. And I thought to myself, you know, here I am, I'm this young girl and I have a great family and people who love me and a great support system. And even I feel so alone and scared in this crazy relationship. I said, I can only imagine how many other folks in the world would feel that way and even worse if they didn't have the support that I have. So I decided that I wanted to be that kind of a person. I wanted to be someone that people could go to. And because I was in this relationship at a young age, I became sexually active at a younger age. And I wanted to learn about what I was going through and what my body was dealing with. So one of my friends, her parents had a library and they had a book all about sex and I would go and read it because I wanted to know what my body was going through and what I was feeling. And so I became not only someone who knew about sex at a younger age than most people, I was learning from a textbook. And then I became the girl that everyone was going to for, you know, advice on like, you know, what, what's a blowjob or, you know what I mean? Like, why did I get my period or what do I do? How do I put in a tampon? All these questions. And I, I decided to turn that part of me of knowing all the answers to questions and, and being interested in sex to also being somebody who wants to be there for people emotionally into a career. And so here I am becoming a sex doctor. I love it so much. The thing that um, speaks the most to me out of all the things you just said was your love and intentionality around language. So you have alternate language talking about commitment therapy, which I absolutely love. Alternate language is something that is um, huge in my practice. It's something that um, I actually have clients that have heard it from their friends and say, like, I, I want the alternative language. I hear, you know, how much that has to do with your mindset and it really does affect things. Right. And then your, your, your language around um, sex and that sex is a taboo topic. Right. And that even naming our body parts out in public, like penis and vagina. And I just say these things all the time. Right. So I'm saying vaginas and vulvas left and right. That's what we do. That is that's our job, right? So it's normal sure. for us. Um, I love that you you say that these are just normal words for you because that's how I feel too. And these are things that I think people do seek out and that you don't have a lot of people in your life that you can just openly talk to and ask questions and, um, you know, get reliable, honest answers. Um, yeah, researched answers and answers of, sure. uh, of, you know, good information. So that's awesome. I love your outlook on that. I also love your outlook on um, finding a doctor that listens to you rather than just hears you. And this is something that you say over and over again, um, and that your doctor should validate you rather than trying to persuade you that this is all in your head. Mm -hmm. um, what do you say to someone who's sitting there thinking, gosh, this is me. That's how my doctor makes me feel. They try to persuade me rather than hear me. And they just, you know, kind of brush me off and make me feel terrible about myself? Yep. No, it's a great question. I think, and it goes and it ties into what you liked about the language and, and finding something that works for you. And I think um, the way that I explain it, and I'll answer, I'll speak to your first comment and then I'll answer the second question, which is life is a matter of communication, right? And safety is a matter of communication. And so if you are communicating with someone and you don't feel like you're being heard and 
whether it be your partner, your mother, your father, your teacher, your doctor, if you don't feel heard, it begins to, to make someone feel like they're not in a safe space. And when we don't feel like we're in a safe space, our mind closes up, we become defensive, we're not open to a lot of the things that are right in front of us, and we don't get to learn or experience things the way that we want to. And so what I say to people, it's like, you need, when somebody comes into my office and says, well, I was having penile vaginal intercourse, I'll stop and say, okay, just for the sake of our conversation, is that how you would usually say it? And the person would look at me and usually say, no, not at all. I say, okay, well, what do you usually call it? And, and I've had someone say, okay, well, you know, we were, you know, F-U-C-K-I-N-G or we were, you know, I don't know, we're doing it. I was like, okay, so if that's how you speak about it, use your language here. Because if we're not speaking the same language, what I'm saying to you, you're not going to really compute in your mind. And when you're going through a therapeutic process or a medical process, that is so incredibly important. So now to my point, to your question about, you know, what do, what do you say to someone who a doctor says, you know, it's just in your head. Doctors are trained to look at things from a very med- biomedical perspective, where oftentimes, unfortunately, I think many doctors, and it's not something that I, I blame them for. Um, it's a bigger systemic issue in the way that we do medical school. But I think many doctors aren't trained on how to be empathetic and how to speak to somebody about what they're going through emotionally. It's very biomedical in their approach. And so I think if we were to give some space to that, right, as the patients, because I'm a patient too, that I think it could leave less room for feeling really upset and hurt by when a doctor says that to us. That's one. And two, you know, advocate for yourself that if you feel there, there are really two, three steps to it. First step is to being a little bit more open, open open-minded and understanding that while we might be really in touch with our feelings, it doesn't necessarily mean that a doctor is going to be in touch with their feelings as a person, because they're still humans, even though they're doctors. Um, And they may need to keep that boundary up for themselves to be able to cope with what they have to deal with in their patients on a daily basis. Two, you want to make sure that you're expressing how you feel and what you need to your medical doctor. So if you feel that you need more hand-holding or you feel like you need someone to answer more questions and spend more time with you to answer your questions, or you feel like your feelings are being pushed aside, you're entitled to express that. And like in therapy, if someone you know, I tend to be a really tough cookie as a therapist. I'm pu- I can be pushy and I don't mean pushy in a bad way, but I could be pushy where if somebody, if I get to know somebody and then they throw some, you know, I'm just going to be frank with you. Like if they throw some bullshit into the room where I'm like, that's an excuse of, you know, and I'm thinking in my head, that's an excuse. I might say to somebody that's bullshit, you know, and somebody might, somebody may get upset with me for saying that and that's okay. Um, but I would prefer, and I think any therapist would prefer that if a client is upset with something that is said or doesn't like something that's being said or how something's being handled, we're still human beings and you have to come back to that. So if you're just going to stomp your foot and walk out of the office and say, I'm not going to take part in this anymore, you're not doing any justice to the relationship in general. At the end of the day, the second most important thing is that you have to communicate what it is that you're feeling. So both people, both the patient and the doctor or the patient and the therapist are both human beings. And it's okay for you to feel like you're not being heard. It's okay for you to feel not listened to. It doesn't make it right. But before, you know, stomping your foot or getting mad or saying they're a bad doctor or a bad therapist or that they weren't willing to listen to me, express to the person how you feel and say something like, it would really mean a lot to me if we could talk about last session because I didn't feel like I had a chance to be able to actually express how I was feeling. Or, you know, I would really like to talk to you about our last appointment because I feel like I had a lot of questions that I really didn't get a chance to answer, to ask you. And it made me feel very anxious to not have the answers to questions that I have. And then three, you know, understand that if you express yourself and you communicate 
your needs. Like I tell my patients all the time, two things in life no one can take from you, your feelings and your needs. And you're entitled to them everywhere and any time of day. So if you go to the doctor and you, and you take the time to first process your feelings and your needs and express your feelings and needs to the doctor, and then the doctor doesn't take that into consideration, that's when you can think about it and say, you know what, maybe I need to consider finding a new doctor or finding a new therapist of someone who's willing to work with me around what I'm communicating. And that's like any relationship you have in life. If you're going to take the time to communicate your feelings and needs and the other human that you're sharing that with isn't respecting that, that's when you need to rethink your relationship, whether it be romantic, business related, or medically related. I couldn't agree more. I think you said so much great information in that. Um, I just took down a couple notes and I'll go through them really quick. You mentioned that your mind closes up, you know, when you're not in a safe space and we see this all the time in birth work, your body will physically close up in birth. If you are not in a safe space, if you are in a place where the energy is comforting and secure and offers you comfort and you feel safe, your body will, it just, it, it won't work, right? It just nope. really will not work with you. And that doesn't mean it's not working. That's not what I meant. It's working. It's just working in the best interest of, of safety and keeping you alive and keeping you in that safe space. And so you want to create this place where the energy is comforting and gentle and says, it's okay for you to open up. Um, so that's really fascinating that, you know, no matter kind of what you look at in, in the human body, you can see these, these things ringing true. Mm-hmm. Another thing that you mentioned was, um, you know, people might get upset at you as their therapist for calling bullshit on some of their, their bullshit, right? So mm-hmm. if you're trying to feed you a crock of shit and you have the responsibility to say, hey, that's BS. And I don't think I don't think you're doing either one of us justice, you know, saying this, what are we really talking about here? Let's get to the bottom line and you can just make so much progress for that. You know, challenging people in their thinking that can be hard and it can be uncomfortable. Um, and as their therapist, um, you know, even I sometimes see this in my practice and in the things that I do and, it's important for us as therapists to realize it's okay for them to be angry. It, it means they're growing, right? It reminds me of my time in early childhood. Um, it's okay when a toddler is angry at you and, and throws, throws a tantrum out of anger. Mm-hmm. They're growing. They're learning, you know, tears, mm-hmm. being angry, being sad, being upset, being mm-hmm. stubborn, all of that is showing growth in those toddlers. Um, And it's kind of the same thing. And being able to advocate to somebody that you have that relationship with provides you the place to practice advocating for yourself in a safe space, right? So you know that your doula or your therapist or or your best friend or your, your partner or maybe not your best friend and partner, and that's why you have sought out professional help no matter why you were there, it gives you this place where you know you're safe. You know that person's always gonna react with compassion and in your best interest, right? Well, and so I think that's so fascinating because when we think about the saying of like, the what we're usually mean to the ones that we love, you know what I mean? Like we're usually, we usually take out our anger on the ones that we love. And the reason behind that is because we know that no matter how mean and angry we may get, that the love that we have and the bond that we have is still there. Like when a child throws a tantrum or does something or bites you or like, you know, is misbehaving in a way where, you know, you can't believe, oh my God, I can't believe this kid is doing this right now. It's like the love that you have for that child is going to overshadow and take over that anger and frustration that you feel. And it happens in marriages and relationships. And it can also happen with a doctor and a professional. Like it's, I tell people all the time, I'm like, I'm not afraid of your anger. You know, I'm, I'm not afraid of it. So if you're afraid of it, let's talk about it so that we don't have to hold on to that fear because anger only becomes, I talk about it. And when I have a child someday, you know, I'm a firm believer. There's a book, um, a Sesame street book called the monster at the end of this book. And if you don't own it, I suggest you all go out and buy it. I get nothing for saying that, but I just, I believe in the book and I have it and I have the sequel to it. And it really just promotes this idea of, I think that we all have a monster. And a mentor of mine taught me that. 
and everybody has a monster and, and it's that anger inside of us that we haven't processed. And we've been shutting it out for so long because when you have a tantrum when you're little, right, you get shut down. We don't act that way. Don't act that way. You know, you, you tell children, I'm not going to listen to you when you're acting that way. I'll listen to you when you're not acting that way. But they're, they're communicating something to us. And when we, and, and for so many people, our anger gets shut down. We don't ever get to process it. And that's when it becomes a monster that's dangerous because you don't know what it's going to bring. Whereas if you process your anger and how it makes you feel, it can be so much more constructive. So I appreciate what you just said. And I think in the, in the role of fertility and relationships, um, it's a very angry experience to be going through infertility. And it pr produces a lot of anger. And if we're not, if we already have all this anger that we're growing up with, that we're not processing, and then you put that on, it's like, I'm talking, this is like whipped cream, cherries, sprinkles, sundaes, you know, everything on top of the cake. And it just becomes completely overwhelming. You know, anger, anger often gets this really bad connotation of like, it's yeah. a negative energy and it is a negative energy. I get that. But, you know, you can change that negative energy into something positive because when mm -hmm. you're angry, you can dig deep and see like, why the hell does this make me so angry? And then fix it. Why don't you come up with, with a way to fix it, right? I promise you're not the only person that this makes angry. Try and do something with that negative energy um, and give it a, give it like a ricky ricky reverse, reverse that negative energy into something that is positive and, and bringing positive light. So, um, which leads me into, you know, my, my, love for the way that you kind of reframe your approach to infertility. Um, and it is all about mindset and, and focus, um, which is also, you know, huge in, in my beliefs and what I do and how I carry out my practice. Can you tell us a little bit about how you reframe that approach to infertility? Absolutely. So I think it kind of dawned on me after when I had my first, well, when I had my miscarriage in July of 2017, um, I was so worried and scared and nervous all the time. And I was seeing a doctor at the time whose approach was um, a bit more pessimistic, and not from a bad place, but just not cautiously optimistic, but more cautiously pessimistic. And it was really damaging to me. And I've come to learn from working with patients and many women through Instagram and all over the place that like, many doctors behave that way. And it's scary. Um, and I realized, you know, I was so nervous and scared. And then I miscarried. And I gave it a lot of thought while I was healing and emotionally and physically. And I said to myself, the environment that I create for myself daily, emotionally, is the environment that this embryo is going to grow in. And if I'm going to make this a negative experience for myself where I'm constantly worrying, constantly stressing, constantly telling myself, what if it doesn't work? What if this doesn't happen? What if I never get to get there? What if I'm not supposed to be a mom? What if I'm not supposed to get pregnant? If that's what I'm going to be telling myself on a daily basis, why the hell would I get pregnant? And it kind of clicked. And so I said, you know what? I'm not going to sit here and tell myself on a daily basis that something's wrong or that I'm in pain or that something's going to be bad. I said, let me tell myself on a daily basis how, how grateful I am to be alive and how healthy my body is and how I'm lucky to still have my parts that I need to be able to reproduce in a way that I want to. You know, that I have the access and the ability to afford health care. Um, you know, it might not be easy in this country. <laughs> I'll say that, but you know, the fact that I'm still able to have the access to see an infertility doctor, like, oh my God, there are so many women who don't have that. So I think for me, it really just became about like, I want a baby more than anything. I want to bring a life into this world and to raise it to be a wonderful human being. And that starts with you as the, as the mom. It starts with you as the parent. It doesn't start with a sperm and egg. It starts with you. 
And I think that's something that's really hard for people to accept. But once you can wrap your head around that, it's like, if you can't be positive, the other biggest thing that I will say, not to be on a rant, but as a therapist, it's like, if you can't be positive about your life, you are going to raise a child who is going to mirror all of your behaviors because that is what they know. So before you go and bring a child into the world, take yourselves on and find a way to repurpose the negative energy and the sadness in your world into a way where you can really work through it so that you then have the power to teach that to your child. And I think that's kind of what made me be positive, realizing that if I really want to bring a baby into this world, how can I bring a baby into this world if I was going to look at everything so negatively? That would be a frightening place for a baby to be. I agree. <laughs> I mean, I think the world is kind of a frightening place for a baby to be in general. But yeah, yep. I think you have so much you have so much control on that. I want to back up just a little bit to um, the gra- gratitude aspect of things because I think so many women um, and men, I think, I think couples, I think, um, you know, lots of people, even grandparents who are, who are involved in the infertility journeys, they all find so much, well, I won't say all, but many of them find so much comfort in gratitude, right? And being mm-hmm. able to shift the way that you think about things and you approach things and the language that you use to reflect being grateful for this mm-hmm. journey because um, it really does make um, you know your pregnancy that much sweeter or your postpartum period that much um, sweeter or that those sleepless nights that much sweeter or um, you know all the things that sometimes get a bad rap in the in the parenthood journey it makes them all that much sweeter when you have um, when you have a journey on infertility, I think people can find that gratefulness um, in there, that silver lining for sure. And I love how you also talk about, um, you know, what your kids see you do is absolutely how they're gonna gonna act. You are, you're a god essentially to them, right? Like you are yeah. everything. You're the end all, be all. You are what they see and they hear and they look up to and they think is right and they compare other people to. So even though your children see other people do things, you're their baseline. You're where they're comparing back to, right? So don't forget that you have a very important job and it does. It it starts with you trying to conceive. It really does. It really, mm-hmm. really does. Can you talk a little bit about um, the fear and the embarrassment component that comes along with infertility? And for those of us who work in that end of the spectrum of women's health, we know it is all too real. But for someone who isn't going through that particular journey, the logical thing to do if you're trying to have a baby is to have sex all the time. Um, But that is harder said than done. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, it's exhausting. Sex, sex can be, okay, so regarding, let me say a couple things. One, you know, sex can be so pleasurable, right? Like it can be something that can be, you know, off the charts, chandelier, hanging from the chandelier, like amazing sex. It can also be something that people dread. It could be anxiety producing. It could be scary. It can be boring. It could be painful. Sex can be a lot of different things. Um, And especially, you know, so many people don't really know how to get pregnant. So it just becomes this concept of like, okay, well, you got to be off birth control. You have to have unprotected sex and then you have sex every single day and hope for the best. It doesn't really work that way. And it leads to a lot of fear and embarrassment when people are doing these things and then aren't achieving pregnancy because there's one, the fear in what if something's wrong with me? Then there's the fear of what, is some, what if something's wrong with my partner? Then comes the embarrassment of, oh my gosh, what if it's me? And then it becomes what's going on with us that, that we don't know how to get pregnant and everyone else around us is pregnant. And social media doesn't help this because everyone on social media seems to be pregnant and happy in their relationship, but no one talks about how sex hurts. No one 
talks about how, oh my God, I have to have sex with my husband tonight. I'm dying. I don't want to do that. Like no one's talking about this stuff, but that's all too real and really going on in the world. Um, and I think, you know, the fear behind infertility and what it means to be experiencing infertility is huge. People are afraid of it. People are afraid of what it means and what it's going to mean for your body and your experience. And I think if you were to look at it through just the fear lens, um, it can be really debilitating. But if you can look at it through a different lens, that's more positive of, you know, what, what, what information and knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. So if you take the time to gain knowledge, ask people, ask me, ask Kihi, like reach out, ask questions, and then approach, it's a lot less frightening and a lot less embarrassing. But many women are experiencing this. Many men are experiencing this. It's not just women. And people are not alone. Yeah, and reaching out, I think, gives you that that safe space, right? So I know that Carly and I both, we are a safe space. So you can email us, you can Instagram us, you can Facebook us. Um, we hold that space for people all the time, and it makes you feel not so alone, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Carly, can you tell us a little bit about um, what a fertility-friendly diet might look like, including endometriosis and PCOS? Mm-hmm. So I'm the worst to ask with this because I am a chocoholic and a donut addict. So I love my sugar, admittedly. But I will say that a fertility-friendly diet would typically be one that is of a low glycemic index, low sugar, low carbohydrates, low um, like saturated fats and, and you know, bad fats. Um, and you want to get rid of all that stuff. So you don't want to have high sugar. You don't want to have a big sugar intake. You don't want to have a lot of like white processed carbohydrates, like white bread and, and hamburger buns and stuff like that. And you also want to minimize the amount of, I think if I stand corrected, let me not say that. Cause I was, yeah, let me just not go there. Um, but all in all, you know, a, a healthy fertility friendly diet would be very low sugar, um, low caffeine. You know, the question is, can I have caffeine? Am I allowed to have caffeine if I'm trying to get pregnant? Typically, I'm not a doctor, but doctors do say you can have one cup of caffeine a day. For me, I would recommend to anybody who comes to me that to switch from caffeine to decaf. There is the argument that decaf has chemicals in it to make it decaffeinated, so it's not healthy. And that's a valid argument if it's true. I haven't seen the data behind that yet, so I'm not sure. But me personally, in trying to get pregnant, I've been drinking a cup of decaf a day, and, and I've been eating sugar. But, you know, you have to follow your diet and your body and whatever that means for you. Absolutely. It's so personalized, right? So there's so many factors also to take in into consideration. Um, but that's good to know about the sugars. Um, and the bread, gosh, and I love bread that, mm -hmm. you know, sacrifices. It's hard. And sugar, not to interrupt you, but sugar, the reason why it's not good is because it really um, impacts the reproductive system and your, and by reproductive system, I mean your endocrine system and your hormones. So sugar feeds estrogen, estrogen feeds endometriosis. If you have uneven levels of hormones in your hormones are imbalanced. It can cause, you know, other issues. PCOS is, you know, there's um, an insulin resistance that's seen quite frequently with PCOS and polycystic ovarian syndrome. So to be eating lots of sugar is not very helpful when you have an insulin resistance or you might be prone to insulin resistance. So you want to make sure that you communicate all of these different things to your doctor so that you can come up with a healthy protocol and plan for yourself. For sure. And you can't be worried about what your neighbor is eating for their endometriosis or PCOS or infertility. Because um, again, there's so many things that need to go into it that it really is something um, to be discussed with your doctor. Absolutely. Shifting gears a little bit to your own journey um, and story. Can you tell our listeners what exactly um, endometriosis is? What causes it? What the treatment is? Um, mm -hmm. All the things, the pain. Come on, educate my people. Yeah, for sure. So endometriosis is a chronic benign disease. It's, it's her, it tends to be hereditary. One in 10 women have it. Men cannot have it. 
Um, endometriosis is essentially where there's tissue that's similar to, but not the same, right? So it's similar to the tissue that's found in the lining of the uterus, but it's not the same. So the tissue presents itself outside of the uterus in areas where it doesn't belong. And frequent places where it's seen is around reproductive organs. Now, endometriosis, if you have it, some of the most frequent, like common symptoms are extreme fatigue, painful sex, um, very heavy menstrual periods, really bad cramping. And when I say really bad cramping, I mean like if you were to take two Tylenol or two Advil, it's not doing anything. And so you're still in a lot of pain. Um, what it is, is basically when the endometriosis tissue, right, presents itself outside of the uterus, that tissue acts like Velcro. So wherever it is, it attaches itself to whatever it's near. And then whatever it attaches to, it causes inflammation. So in me, for example, and I know you guys can't see me, y'all can't see me, but you you have to think of it as like Velcro, where if my endometriosis is behind my uterus, in between my uterus and my rectum. So for many years, I was misdiagnosed with having irritable bowel syndrome because I would get sick all the time. And we thought, and it was always around the time of my period. I was always feeling really sick and my periods were so bad. I couldn't go to school. My mom thought I was just wanting to play hooky. But what it was is that this endometriosis tissue had adhered to my uterus on the back end and also to my colon. And it caused almost like an adhesion between the two organs that wasn't supposed to be there. But the funky thing about endometriosis is whatever it attaches to, it inflames. And that's why it can be so incredibly painful. So for me, you know, period cramps are not just period cramps. It's something, it's an organ that's inflamed that's now cramping. And that's what makes it even more painful. Now, endometriosis can cause infertility and infertility-related issues when you have the tissue around organs needed to reproduce, such as your fallopian tubes, your ovaries, your uterus, okay? If you have a inflammatory tissue attached to your fallopian tubes, A, it can cause a blockage so that the eggs can never reach your uterus and then, hey, that can't happen, you're not getting pregnant. Or you'd be more prone to having an ectopic pregnancy if those little guys can get up there, uh, but the egg can never get back down. We've seen ovaries be covered in, in endometriosis tissue where the ovary is so inflamed. Now, keep in mind, endometriosis, whatever it attaches to, it inflames. So it makes it really uncomfortable and sore and, and it hurts. And in order for you to be able to reproduce efficiently, your body can't be inflamed right? Your organs have to be working properly. So if your organs are constantly inflamed and uncomfortable, they may not function the way that they're supposed to function, which is why endometriosis can lead to infertility. It doesn't necessarily mean if you have it that you're going to be infertile or have infertility issues, but it is more likely if you have endometriosis around your reproductive organs. Now, I'll also say that endometriosis patients do frequently need infertility treatment, but it's not necessarily something that they, if you have endometriosis, you're going to need. The other thing is, is how do you test for endo? People ask that all the time. Like, how do I know if I have endometriosis? And unfortunately, there's no test for endometriosis unless you do a surgical biopsy and you excise the tissue and you test it and it comes back positive. However, there are doctors who are endometriosis specialists. And if you think you have endometriosis, I strongly suggest you do not go to your regular OBGYN. I'm sure they're a wonderful doctor who have been trained in obstetrics and gynecological services, but it takes someone who is very much specifically trained in endometriosis to understand how to really assess for it properly. And what we're seeing is this influx in doctors who are saying, oh, you have endometriosis or it looks like endometriosis. And I, you know, I, I, I know you have endometriosis, but there's no real way to know that. So then we start treating people because of it. And it just turns into this vicious cycle of things that really don't need to occur.
That's really scary. You know, it is really important to do your homework before you, um, before you have anybody involved in kind of big decisions, especially when it's in the medical realm like this. Um, it just makes me think of, you know, interviewing your doulas. You should definitely interview several doulas. You should find one that is your perfect match, right? Um, and yep. it might not always be who you think it's going to be. It might not be any of the, the first, I don't know, five that you, that you interview. You might need to keep going, um, but it, it is really important. Gosh, that's really scary. Um, yeah, I'm glad that you touched a little bit on, on how to get a specific diagnosis and, and whether there were, um, you know, special doctors out there. I think that is a common question. It was definitely mm -hmm. something that was on my mind. Mm -hmm. So do you think being a sex therapist and a women's health expert has helped you um, on this journey? It's much like how I feel being in the birth world has absolutely changed my views, um, you know, about birth and kind of my approach and how I, I think about it and the language I use. And that will impact my birth in a positive manner, I think. I hope that it does. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about how the sexual anxiety women face on the infertility journey and, and kind of um, how being a sex therapist has shaped that for you? So this is really interesting because in my doctorate right now, um, I did some preliminary research about sexual anxiety. And if you look into it, it's not really a, a concept that's been defined yet. Um, people are not defining sexual anxiety as anything different than general anxiety disorder. And as a psychotherapist, you know, I'm not doing diagnosis like a psychiatrist would, but there is a big difference between a generalized anxiety disorder and sexual anxiety and anxiety that's gen like specifically related to sexual experiences. And when you're going through infertility, sex is something that is, you need to have sex to get pregnant, you know, like that needs to occur, whether it's artificially done or, you know, done by the doctor or you're having intercourse with yourselves, sex needs to occur for you to get pregnant. And when all that pressure goes on the sex, it becomes something that people begin to resent and not want and not want to have. And many times with infertility, people don't want to be close to one another and they don't want to feel close to one another because it's like everything that was intimate becomes not intimate anymore you know, and, and it's unfortunate. And so many women are experiencing sexual anxiety and are feeling anxious, but there's this embarrassment and people feel like they're not able to talk about that because it's like, you know, just, just, oh, and then that's my favorite, like, oh, stop stressing, just have sex and enjoy it. You know, just, just, just go home and, you know, sleep with your husband and just have a nice night, like have a glass of wine. You'll be fine. Like it doesn't work that way. And our minds and our bodies produce negative schemas in our brain. And a negative schema is, for example, let's say you have sex with your partner and you're enjoying it, enjoying it. All of a sudden, one position, it really, really hurts. And then you have sex again and it really, really hurts. Your brain is now saying, when I have sex and I do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to be in pain. So I'm going to shut down so that I don't need to be in pain. And then you stop desiring sex and finding things arousing and, and wanting to have sex because your brain is going into defense mode. And these are things that many women don't know about. And it's very unfortunate. But I think, you know, being a sex therapist, I developed my own sexual dysfunction. I didn't have sex with my husband for about a year, maybe a year and a half because of my endometriosis and sex was so incredibly painful. And then it became where sex wasn't painful after my surgery, but, um, I was still so afraid it would be that I didn't, my brain literally did not want to have sex. I was like, nope, not an option. Don't want it. And so being a sex therapist, I, I needed help. I got help um, from a, a wonderful therapist and really got myself back into a place where I can be a sexual being again. But, you know, sometimes the, the, the hardest part about accepting a problem, the hardest part about seeking help is accepting the problem. And accepting sexual anxiety is a really difficult thing, but I can tell you, if you can accept that you have it and you can seek help for it, it can be so much more empowering. It can be life-changing, right? I mean, there's definitely this mental component that goes with sex, and it's something that um, I think whew, our society just doesn't talk about, right? Sexual stuff is so physical, and there's never any kind of um, mental health 
talk around sex, um, that mental component is just never talked about. And I think it is such a, a missing piece in how we teach and talk about sex and how we treat and approach sex and just all of it. So how does, how does one come back from that, from not um, having sex? Like how, what would you say to people who are like, yeah, that's me. I haven't had sex in a year and I don't know what to do about it. I want to have sex, but I don't know what to do about it. Yeah. So first and foremost, if you can afford sex therapy, I would say that that's obviously a really helpful thing, especially with somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, it can be really helpful in guiding you to work through the feelings that you have around the anxiety. If you don't have access or you can't um, have, get access, then start with massages. Like open the door to reestablishing intimacy and arousal in a way that's safe. It doesn't have to be where you go from not having sex for a year to all of a sudden, you know, hanging off the chandelier. It's not a rational expectation. So you're going to feel incredibly disappointed by having that kind of an expectation. So instead of that, you know, make it where you, you maybe plan a date night. And I tell people all the time, like when you were dating each other, when you first started dating your partner, you're dating. So sex is scheduled. We forget the fact that it had to be scheduled. You knew that Saturday night you were going out on a date. So you got yourself all together and you knew you were going to end up having sex. So you got yourself together, made yourself, you know, look and feel hot and good and confident so that when you would have sex, you'd enjoy it. We stopped doing that after a while in relationships. And that also plays a role into sexual anxiety because we feel all this pressure, but no buildup. You know what I mean? It's just like, okay, should we do it now? Okay. All right. I take off my own clothes. You take off your own clothes. It doesn't have to be that way, but it's going to take effort from you and your partner to reestablish that connection. And you can start by just going out on a date and maybe coming home and making out if you like to make out or giving each other a massage, turn on a candle, put on some sexy music. You know, I love my sex playlists, put one on. And even if it doesn't lead to intercourse, See what it does lead to, you know, leave the door open and that can be a much safer way to explore that. Absolutely. I think um, that just having that connection, right? So at the end of the day, you're just searching for that connection. Um, and if that's how that starts and it doesn't, like you say, lead to where you thought it might be open that in the next couple of times it might lead to where you thought, or maybe that's not what you needed, or maybe that's not what your partner needed at that moment. And maybe the connection that you had was just perfect for, for one or both of you. Yep. So you recently had a procedure done um, to receive, to retrieve some of your eggs. Can you take us through that experience? Sure. So, so many women nowadays are going and doing an egg retrieval because the average age of motherhood has gone up. People are having children later in life. And I think that also has to do with how hard it is to be able to make a living that can be, you know, substantial enough to be able to support a family and people are having to work longer and harder in life before they can even support a family. But then, you know, we still have the biological clock that's ticking against us. And so women are finding the need to go and freeze their eggs. I cannot stress enough to you how important it is to find a doctor who knows what they're doing. Like if you are going to do an egg retrieval or if you're going through IVF to just, you know, whether you're doing an egg retrieval to put your eggs in a bank so that at some point later down the line you can use them or you want to start IVF, to do the whole process, don't just go to somebody who does it as a side business, like, or not, not a side business. I don't mean it like that, but like, don't go to somebody who just does it because, you know, it's on their menu of things that they offer. Go to someone who specializes in egg retrievals and knows what they're doing because it really takes, it's not just mechanical the way that many people think it is. It really takes a specific science um, certain kinds of people, embryologists. And it's a lot of detail that goes into this. And I've learned through being part of the process and having my doctor, Dr. Brian Levine at, at CCRM New York. Um, he's got a team of four doctors at that practice and they are just, in my opinion, they're world-renowned doctors. Um, you know, they, they're up to date on all the protocols. They really know what to do. And their embryologists are incredible. You can talk to them. You can learn about your eggs. You can understand the process. And I think that there's, like I said, there's power in knowledge. 
you know, and, and the more, you know, the, the safer you feel. And so for me, I went through IVF, um, to try to get pregnant and we had to retrieve my eggs. So I was giving myself three shots a day, two to three shots a day, I would say for a month and a half. No. Well, oh my gosh, it's really hard to look back and figure out the exact protocol, but I was giving myself two to three shots a day for quite some time. And then they basically, what they do is they give you those shots so that you can produce follicles, which inside the follicles on your ovaries have the eggs in them. So I was producing lots of follicles and it depends on your age, your, you know, your history, your, your body and everything of how many eggs you can make. Now I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. So I had lots and lots of follicles on my ovaries, which is a classic symptom of PCOS to have all these little, like they look like pearls on your ovaries. Um, and I was going and, and, when they gave me all the shots and everything, I ended up producing 54 eggs. Now the average number of eggs produced in an IVF cycle for retrieval is between nine to 15. So I had 54. So I was incredibly uncomfortable. Um, but we ended up getting 17 embryos from it that were fertilized and in good, and in good health. So if you're going to do an, uh, an egg transfer, I mean, you and I could sit here and do a whole nother podcast about egg transfers because there's so much to know. Um, and I'm happy to do that at another time if people express that they want to know more. But I do think that a really important thing for you to know as, as the patient is that if you're going to go through a, an egg retrieval, you want to make sure, like, you really want to make sure that you're not just going to somebody who's just trying to take eggs out of you. You want to go to somebody who really knows what they're doing because you can take out 20 eggs and if you don't know how to process them correctly, you know, now you're 20, like, 20 eggs less in your body and who knows if they're actually really going to be utilized in the best way possible. So do your homework for no one else but yourself. Absolutely. It's really important to know people's backgrounds and, and kind of where people come from and what they're bringing to the table, especially when it has to do with your health and something as pivotal in your life as, um, as having a baby, right? So mm -hmm. Get, after you have your eggs retrieved, what are the next steps after that um, that people can expect? Sure. Every doctor does it differently. And that's why it's so important that when you go, first of all, interview doctors. Don't just walk into a clinic and like sign up and be like, okay, I'm going to come here. Like interview doctors, you're entitled to a free consultation. Sometimes consultations can cost like $100, $150 or depends. I would say anywhere between 150 and 300 for a consult. And if you decide to go with that clinic, they usually put that consult towards your treatment. Um, but you want to make sure that you feel really comfortable with the doctor that you're choosing to do this with. And that you can also ask them what kind of pr protocols do they use? How many protocols do they have? And that's a really important question that I didn't know until I went through this. So most places have you know, between three and four protocols, CCRM New York has 11. And now the protocols basically mean there are certain medications that get used through injection into your stomach, right? And you do the, I do the injections myself. Um, many people do. And there are certain protocols of different medications that get used for the production of eggs. Now, if you're a woman over 35, and let's say you have a low egg reserve and you don't have a lot of eggs, a protocol that's going to work on a 27-year-old may not work the same on a woman who's 35 and has a low egg quality or low egg reserve. So you want to go someplace that's not just going to utilize the same protocol on all their patients because it's not going to yield the best results. You want to go to some, someone who uses different protocols that are personalized and catered to each different patient. You know, and, and that's a very difficult thing to find. And I, and I know that, and it makes me very sad to think that. Um, but the other thing is, it's like, I also tell people, and this is a huge point, let's say it costs you eight to $10,000 or, you know, it depends on where you are, but relatively between seven to like $10,000 to do an egg freeze, right? But you're going to somewhere you're going and you have no insurance coverage for it, but you're going somewhere where they don't necessarily really specialize in it, or it's like a 
you know, like a factory where this is just like what they're doing, it may not yield the best results. You may spend $20,000 at a clinic who really knows what they're doing. And yes, that's a significant amount of money more. But at the end of the day, if you're going to someone who doesn't really specialize in this because it's cheaper and it doesn't work, there goes your first 10 grand. Now you're going to be spending another 10 grand on another cycle and another 10 grand. And by the time that you're done with all that, not only are you emotionally exhausted, you're financially exhausted and physically exhausted where you could have spent more money upfront, maybe with like a payment plan or something, but have been treated by someone who really knows what they're doing. So that's where we need as, as people to really sit down and start looking at IVF and, and infertility as a business venture, because it is, you know, it's a financial decision, but how can you make one that's most appropriate for your current situation? Yeah, I think something that, you know, just continues to be brought up is how individualized things are. And I think that can be said for, I mean, kind of for life, right? Especially for having a baby from start to finish. I think um, everything is just super, super individualized. So can you tell us a little bit about how um, this infertility journey has impacted your, your relationship with your husband? And then maybe a little bit about what you see in your office. How does this normally impact people? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it brought my husband and me together. Um, we really had to get, a, I mean, every, no matter how happy somebody looks on Instagram, I can tell you that every, every relationship has its issues, right? As a relationship therapist, I can promise you that. Um, so having issues in a relationship, you're not alone. Um, you're not alone. And it doesn't mean that your relationship is failing. It means you're human and you're two people from two totally different worlds coming together to make one world work and got to keep that in mind. Um, I will say that it's brought us together because, you know, I needed help in the support of the shots, the progesterone shots. I have to do one today, actually. I can't do it by myself and I need help with that. You know, I, I needed his emotional support for when I was having breakdowns and for when I'm not okay. And, you know, it's really important that you express to your partner how much support you need. Don't expect it to just come. You have to communicate that. But you also need to communicate that just because your partner may not be the one who's carrying or who might not be producing eggs, your partner might be anxious and scared too. And so it's not all about you. It's about both of you. And I think that that's something that it took me a while to think about, like the pressures that he was feeling as a result of all this and how I could be more respectful and understanding of those pressures and how to hear what makes him scared and um, what makes him nervous. So I think that brought us together for sure. And I think it affects my practice because in, in practice, I see so many couples going through infertility and a lot of men have reached out to say, hey, you know, I'm going through infertility. My sperm count is low. My morphology is off. My motility is down. Like, what do I do? My wife is so mad at me. My wife doesn't want to have sex with me. She doesn't, you know, or my, my partner doesn't want to be with me. You know, there's, it's, it's not just women who are, struggling with infertility. There are same-sex male couples who want to get want to get pregnant with a donor egg. Do you know what I mean? Like there are plenty of issues that are going on that we're not necessarily opening the door to. And I think it's really important that we just begin to open the conversation around that to create some kind of awareness. Absolutely. This definitely impacts um further than just women's health. And I think it's so, so easy to forget that our partners have so much um, responsibility too, but also they feel responsible for things sometimes that they can't control. So there is mm -hmm. a piece, um, you know, even though it's not their body per se, um, but yeah, it's, it's just as hard for the partners sometimes. And that's really important to, um, to remember. For sure. One of the things that I really love about, um, about the things that you teach is the science behind um, why it's so important to be positive. Can you um, explain to our listeners a little bit about what I'm talking about? Because this is something that I um, talk to my clients all the time about. It's, it's something that I believe in wholly and I'm really, really excited to, to share this with our listeners. Mm -hmm. So when you say science, what do you mean by science? 
So you've talked about um, before about the science behind being positive and how it releases the chemicals um, mm-hmm. in your brain that affects your ability to get pregnant and it affects the way. Oh, yeah. Pregnant, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great, a great point. So when we stress, right, like everyone stresses on a daily basis. There's a certain level of stress that we can't eliminate from our lives. It's just, it's kind of our baseline stress. Like it's normal to be stressed um, because you're human and you live in this world. And quite frankly, it's a stressful place to be. But then there's that extra bit of stress that we tend to put on ourselves. And when we stress, our brains produce something called cytokines, which are, which negatively impact the body. And then our brain also doesn't, produces much dopamine, which is our happy hormone. And it also produces a lot of cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And cortisol has been shown in research to, you know, lessen your chances of fertility. It, it negatively impacts the body and the reproductive organs and their ability to function. It, it, it disrupts your endocrine system and your hormones. So if you have like an immense amount of cortisol and stress hormones and you're constantly making yourself negative and, and not feel good and, and, and accentuate only the negative in your life, not the positive, you're increasing your levels of cortisol, you're decreasing your levels of dopamine, and you're making yourself, you know, you're going to make yourself sick. And it's just not worth it, especially if you're going to throw yourself through the IVF reproductive medicine world where you're paying to get pregnant. You know, that's why I say to people, like, don't put yourself through the struggle of IVF until you've processed your stress and have learned how to process it. Because it's like, it's, a, it's, it's like burning the candle at both ends. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to put yourself through all this medicine when you're stressing so much and you're so negative and you're so worried and you're so concerned that it's going to counteract all the things you're trying to accomplish. And that's not a way to achieve your goals. It's not going to work that way. Yeah, the first step definitely is to, to reevaluate um, kind of where your stress is coming from, what it does to you, how you feel about it, but then also how to cope with it. And, you know, stress is not always a bad thing. It definitely tells you places in your life that you have growth or things that could be changed or tweaked, but you got to know how to channel that stress into something positive, right? And put some action behind it. Yep. Wow. This has been such an amazing conversation. Where, um, where can people find you if they are interested in maybe your services or just seeking out your advice or maybe they just want to connect with you on social media? Sure. So I write a blog, honestlynaked.com. Uh, again, it's honestlynaked.com. That's my blog. But you can find me at carlyblau.com. So it's C-A-R-L-I, like icicle or igloo. C-A-R-L-I, B as in boy, L-A-U. Carly Blau, C-A-R-L-I, B as in boy, L-A-U.com. And you can find me there. You can Google me. Um, you can also email me at cabtherapy at gmail.com. That's like a New York City cab. So cabtherapy at gmail.com. Or you can call 917-710-4497. That's my work line. It'll lead you right to a voicemail. Leave a voicemail with your name and number and how to get you back. And I'll give you a call. But the easiest way to get a hold of me is through my email or to go to carlyblau.com. And you can also just look me up on Instagram, which is where everyone's been following my stories and everything about me and this whole IVF process. And God willing, you know, I'll be able to share a pregnancy process at some point too. Um, and you can look me up at sex.carly. So at sex.carly. I love your Instagram. It's one of my favorite Thank accounts. You. And I, um, I know I'm one of those uh, people who watch every one of your uh, stories. Thank you. Them up. I, I'm following along and I absolutely love it. Um, You're the best. I so appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. I find so much empowerment from it. Um, and I know so many other women do too. Carly, thank you so, so much for being My pleasure. My pleasure. This is such an honor. And, and just remember that like the power to get pregnant comes from within you. Don't let yourself focus on the negative. It's not going to do anything but bring you more negative. And at the end of the day, the, the baby that you want in your life is going to need all the positivity it can get. So take yourselves on, be the warriors that I know that you are. And be positive and, and, tr- and challenge yourself to be positive. And that is going to 
set the example for that little embryo someday. And that's what's going to bring that baby into your world. Absolutely. I will leave it at that. As always, Village members, find your tribe and love them hard. One last thing before you go. Carly, since recording this, has announced that she is pregnant. She is so darn cute. Huge congratulations to her. We are so happy you're part of our tribe. Did you know that you can join our online tribe? Our private Facebook group can be found by searching the Tranquility Tribe podcast on Facebook. And our Instagram tribe is Tranquility by Hehe. If you have a story you want to share with us, please reach out to us at tranquilitybyhehe at gmail.com. Until next time, villagers.